before he went to the cross. And this is just a small section of it. So um, uh, you'll find yourself that Jesus prayed for you in this, uh, in this section of prayer. But let me read it. Uh, Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's been praying for his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning, shall we? Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather together and to uh, sing praises to you and to encourage one another. Lord, I pray for perhaps uh, a person that came in our doors this morning that uh, is discouraged and is facing some challenges. Lord, I pray that as the body of Christ that we would uh, uplift and encourage one another, that through uh, worship, uh, through your word, that our hearts would be encouraged. Lord, we uh, pray for some in our church family this morning that, uh, that need our prayers. Uh, Lord, we thank you for um, the opportunity now to look into your word, uh, to study this prayer. Lord, may our hearts be challenged and changed because we've been here today and your spirit has spoken to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right, if you've been with us, we are in John chapter 17. We've been in the Gospel of John for a long time, and this morning we're going to look at uh, this prayer of Jesus from John chapter 17. Longest prayer recorded in, in the Bible of Jesus. Um, it's really not that long of a prayer. I, I, I read through the complete prayer, uh, John 17, this last week, and I put my little timer on in my phone. It's it's three minutes long, so you can, you can read it in three minutes, so... Uh, it's not a huge long prayer, but it's the longest one recorded by Jesus. We had a fellow in our church when I was growing up in, in uh, at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio. His name was Mr. Miller. He was a very godly man, but Mr. Miller prayed long prayers on every occasion. And even if we had a little fellowship time after the service and we were having some snacks, if Mr. Miller was called on to pray. You could almost hear sometimes a little groan because he he prayed for every missionary that the church supported, all the ministries of the church, and it was about a 10-minute prayer before we got to our food. Uh, but uh, we're going to look at John, John 17 this morning. And uh, someone has said, if you really want to know what's on somebody's heart, what, what they're concerned about, um, listen to them pray. Because that's going to reveal really what's, what's on their heart, what's, what's they're concerned about. And so we have this wonderful prayer from John chapter 17. And uh, to, to do John 17 justice, we could probably spend uh, about three or four messages on John 17. We're just going to take a quick overview and think about four key truths from John chapter 17 um, and uh, this morning. So... Uh, let's look at uh, lesson or truth number one, four key truths or lessons from John 17. Here's the first one. Uh, when we pray, 
the posture of our heart is more important than the posture of our body. So John 17, 1, uh, we read, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. So if you read through the New Testament, there's all sorts of different postures of prayer. Here we read that Jesus, as he prays, is, is looking up to the heavens as he prays. It reminds me of Psalm 121, 1 and 2. The psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so Jesus is praying, and he's looking up to heaven. There's other postures of prayer in the Bible. Acts 9.40, the apostle Peter. uh, In Acts 9.40, it says, Peter got down on his knees and prayed. So here's uh, Jesus is looking up to heaven. Peter is, is kneeling as he's praying. I remember a long time ago, this is 60 years ago now, visiting my maternal grandparents. And my grandfather worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad. He was a brake inspector. But he's very involved in their local church, a very large church, Calvary Baptist Church, Altoona, Pennsylvania. I remember as a child um, visiting them on a Wednesday night. Now, this is one of the, one of the things of growing up in a pastor's family that even when you were on vacation, you went to church. <laughs> My dad always was interested in other churches and what they were doing. I remember being there on a Wednesday night. There was a prayer meeting. The women all sat on one side of the church. The men all sat on the other side of the church. And it was time for prayer. Every one of them turned around, got down on their knees, and prayed. Now, that doesn't happen very often or maybe at all in, in, in churches anymore. But that was their posture of prayer. So Peter is kneeling. Psalm 95, uh, verse 6, talks about bowing down before we pray. First uh, Timothy 2.8, Paul writes to Timothy, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. And so there's all these different postures of prayer. We might say, well, what's the correct one? And what I've learned is there is no correct prescribed posture for prayer. Now, when I was growing up in the church and learning to pray, um, I was taught this. In order to pray, you have to close your eyes, you have to bow your head, you have to fold your hands, and that's the correct posture of prayer. And as a young person learning to pray, I got so bogged down in the mechanics, making sure I had everything right, you know, that, that that was the focus rather than the prayer. There's no correct posture to pray. In fact, and here's our point this morning, God's more concerned about the posture of our heart than the posture of our body. Psalm 66, the psalmist writes in Psalm 66, verses 18 through 20, these words, Psalm 66, 18 through 20. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. The psalmist saying, if, if I have known sin in my heart and I'm continuing to practice that sin, guess what? God's not going to hear your prayer. He wants to hear a prayer of confession to restore that fellowship. God's more concerned about the posture of our 
heart and the posture of our bodies. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Uh, Jesus told a, a parable in Luke chapter 18 about prayer that drives this point home. In uh, Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Luke writes, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable, two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, and he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What's Jesus teaching in that parable? The posture of our heart, the posture of humility, um, our, our attitude and our humble approach to God is much more important than our, the posture of our bodies. Well, that's the first uh, lesson from John 17, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. But there's a, there's a second lesson, and uh, let's look at lesson number two. It's this, understanding our purpose in life is crucial. Uh, understanding why we are here. What is the purpose of life? One of the reasons I love the scriptures is it gives us the, the answers to life's key questions. Where did I come from? Origins, Genesis 1.1. Why am I here? Very clear, and we'll get to that in a minute. And where am I headed? What's our destiny? And so understanding our purpose in life is crucial. Notice the first phrase of Jesus' prayer in verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, The hour, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, earlier, if you peruse through the Gospel of John, Jesus says continually, My hour has not come. John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says, My hour has not come. John chapter 7, verse 30, at that time, the religious leaders tried to seize Jesus, but they could not lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus spoke these words while teaching in the temple, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And so all through the Gospels, it keeps saying, the hour has not come, the hour has not come, the hour has not come. And then we come to John 17, 1, and Jesus is praying, he's like, here it is. The hour has come. And what is the hour? The hour is the cross. The hour is the very purpose for which Jesus came. Uh, Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Savior. And so Jesus lived the ultimate purpose-driven life. He knew why he was here. The Son of Man has come, what? To seek and to save the lost. And when he uh, spoke those seven statements from the cross, uh, uh, 
when he was on being crucified on that Roman cross, statement number six is, is the cry of victory. Tetelestai, it is finished. I've accomplished my purpose. And so Jesus lived with a, a, a purpose um, in life. And his purpose was redemption. And therefore, he says, the hour has come. Jesus also talks about a larger scope of purpose in in John chapter 17. He gives us a broader picture of his purpose and his mission, and it's found in the the last part of verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Okay, his specific purpose was to die on the cross and shed his blood so that we could have salvation, but his broader purpose, his broader vision and mission was what? To glorify God. That was the very purpose of his life. The word glorify used 23 times in the book of John. The Moody Commentary comments on, uh, on this section of Scripture. and Let me read verses 4 and 5 because he t- talks about this glory. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Moody Commentary writes these words about verse 1 and verses 4 and 5. Uh, the phrase glorify your son refers to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension by which he will receive exalted status from God. Jesus' miracles manifested his glory, but it was his death on the cross and his resurrection that his glory was most displayed. And so what was the overarching purpose of Jesus' life? His whole goal was to glorify God. Reminds me of a verse in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for what? the glory of God. And so Jesus lived this this, uh, purpose-driven life because he knew his purpose and he knew his mission, and that's something that we need to grasp. It has to be more than, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. There has to be more of a purpose line than that. And our purpose in life is the same purpose that Jesus had. If you know Christ as your Savior, it's what to bring him glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, I've quoted it many, many times, asks the question, uh, the first question is, what is the chief purpose of man? And the answer to that catechism is this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're created, to glorify him. Well, you might ask the question, well, how do you do that? And Some of it's found in the text. The answer to that question is found in the text. First of all, obedience to God glorifies God. Obedience glorifies Him. Jesus said, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So when we obey God's word, obey God's truth, obey God's commandments, it what? It it gives glory and brings glory to God. Confession of sin glorifies God. Joshua chapter 7 Verse 19, and um, Alan Durheim taught on this in our uh, adult Sunday school class about three or four weeks ago, the story of, of Achan. And uh, 
Uh, remember Israel's conquering the land and they're going into their first battle and, and God says, I want everything destroyed. I want everything dedicated to me. Don't take any of the spoils. And Achan uh, couldn't help himself and he steals some things and ultimately he's, uh, he's found out after Israel goes into the second battle and loses and they're like, what's going on here, God? And God says, there's sin in the camp. And so they bring every tribe before Joshua, and, and God says, this is the tribe. And then they bring every family in front of Joshua, and God says to Joshua, this is the family. And then they bring the whole family before Joshua, and God says, this is the man. And Joshua confronts Achan about his sin, and he says, my son, give glory to the God of Israel and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan confesses. You know how serious sin is? Thankfully, we're in the age of grace. But Achan's whole family was killed because there was sin in the camp. So confession of sin glorifies God. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, good works glorifies God. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved to do good works. So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't don't hide your testimony. Don't hide your light uh, under a bowl. Let it shine so everyone can see it. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may what see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So when we do good deeds, good works, um, it brings glory to God. Lesson number two. Key truth number two is that uh, understanding our purpose in life is crucial. And, and Jesus n- knew. For, uh, he, he lived the purpose-driven life. And, of course, his purpose and mission was to be our Savior. All right, lesson number three from John chapter 17. Uh, let's look at the third one here. Key lesson number three is this. Eternal life is both quantitative and qualitative. You might say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, eternal life is both quantitative and qualitative. Get that from John chapter 17, verse, verse 3. Again, Jesus' Jesus' prayer. Uh, let me start in verse 2. Uh, For you granted him uh, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life. So here's Jesus' definition of eternal life. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I don't know if that's how you think of the gift of salvation, uh, uh, but I think we've probably been more focused, at least I have, more focused on thinking that when we come to know Christ as our Savior, the gift is quantitative. In other words, we're going to live forever and ever uh, in a wonderful place called the new heavens and the new earth. And that is true. It will, there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. And uh, think about the, the phrase, uh, the last stanza in the, in the hymn, Amazing Grace. We've sung it many, many times. We sang it last Sunday. Verse stanza five. When we've been there 10,000 years, 
bright shining as the sun. That's a long time. 10,000 10, 10, years. When we've been there 10,000 years, 10 millenniums, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Think about that. You can't even begin to comprehend how, how long eternity is. 10,000 years is just the beginning. So we begin to think about e- eternal life from a quantitative standpoint, but Jesus defines it as qualitative. Jesus defines it as a relationship. Eternal life just doesn't mean that you're going to live forever and ever and ever, but it is the quality of that relationship. And so Jesus says, here it is. This is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and that you might know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So Jesus says eternal life is is knowing God and developing a relationship with him. And so J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, which he wrote in 1973, in chapter 3, is entitled, Knowing and Being Known, he asked the question, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? The knowledge of God, he quotes John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, contentment than anything else? It is the knowledge of God. Jeremiah 9.23, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, nor the rich man glory in riches, but let him that glory, glorious, old King James, glorious, I don't even think that was a word, Let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. (laughs) Because if you're going to boast about anything, don't boast about how smart you are, how rich you are, how strong you are. No, it's all about what? The knowledge of God and who God is. That was the goal of the life of the Apostle Paul. He writes his autobiography in in Philippians chapter 3, and he says, that I might know him. And the word there for know is the word epigenosis. It means I want to really, really get to know God. You have that desire in your heart to, to, to get to know him? And we ask the question, well, how do you get to know God? And, and it's very simple, and it's explained in, in Scripture. It's the same relational principles of any relationship. How do you get to know a spouse? How do you get to know a friend? How do you get to know someone? Well, you first have to be introduced to them. That's salvation. Once you realize that Jesus is your Savior through his shed blood on the cross, and that's the only way to heaven, then you move on to uh, getting to know God in a much better way. One of the ways we get to know God is we read his, his love letter to us. He's already communicated to us 66 chapters in a book called the Bible. And the more we read God's writings, the more we get to know him and who he is and what he expects of us. The more time you spend with God, the better you get to know him. It's the same, again, same principle in any relationship. If you want to get to somebody, know somebody really, really well, you have to spend time with them. And so we get to know God as we spend time with him. 
God speaks to us through His Word. We speak to God through prayer. And it's this, it's this communication. It's this, it's this fellowship with Him through prayer, through Bible study, through worship, through fellowshipping with other believers. We can get to know God. And so the more you spend time with God, the better you get to know Him. Jesus defines eternal life not just quantitatively, but qualitatively. It's knowing God and knowing Him. Well, there's a fourth key lesson then as we think about uh, four key truths from John chapter uh, 17. And as I mentioned, we could spend uh, weeks and weeks on John 17. But the fourth key lesson that we just want to think about this morning is the significance and the impact of prayer. Because John 17 is really all about prayer. In fact, you could outline John 17 uh, with these, this outline, uh, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples, the 11 disciples. Judas has already left. John chapter uh, 17, 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all future believers. That's you and me. Did you see it when we read our scripture reading? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I'm praying for all future believers who will come to know Christ through the message of the gospel, through the message of the disciples and the apostles. And so we think about the significance of prayer. What is Jesus doing in his last hours of his life, the last 24 hours of his life? He's praying. We have his prayer here in John chapter 17. It's called the high priestly prayer. He's actually on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to spend some time praying and eventually be arrested. We read about it in Luke chapter 22. Uh, verses 39 through 46. It says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw away. Beyond them, he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So what's Jesus doing in the last 24 hours of his life? Jesus is praying, and he is in intense prayer, a prayer of of agony over the cross. And so Jesus is praying the significance of prayer. Now what does Jesus pray for? Well, we've already looked at John 17 in the first five verses that Jesus is praying that what God would be glorified. God the Father would be glorified. That was the overarching uh, purpose of, of his life. But then he prays for his disciples, the, the 11 disciples, in verses 6 through 19. 
What is he praying for his disciples? Well, let's, let's look at it, verses 11 and 12 of John 17. Um, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was yet with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That's Judas Iscariot. So Jesus' prayer for the 11 disciples is that, God, would you protect them? I've been with them for the last three years and have helped them and provided for their needs, but now, Lord, would you protect them? Protect them in your name? Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Oh, why do they need protection? We need protection because there's an, there's an enemy out there. He's called the evil one. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, we need the, what, arm yourself with the armor of God because he's out to get us. Guess what? God has a plan for your life. So does Satan. And so he's praying that that those disciples would be protected. He also prays that they would be sanctified or set apart. Verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So Jesus prays two things. I want those disciples to be protected, but I also want them to be set apart, sanctified. And that's literally what the word means. The word sanctified means to be set apart. And in this case, it's not in isolation. Sometimes we we think about being set apart is like, well, we don't want to expose ourselves to anything that's, that's in the world, and, and so we're just going to get in this little cluster of Christians all the time. No, Jesus is setting apart his disciples. What? For mission. I'm setting you apart. Why? Because I'm sending you into the world to take my word and to do my work. And so Jesus prays for himself, and then Jesus prays for his disciples, And then Jesus prays for you and me. That's the last part here. Jesus prays for all future believers. And we read it in our scripture reading, but let me read it again. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Here's his prayer. The specific request. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as I have loved you you. Did you catch a theme there? It's, 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 it's four or five times um, in those few verses. I'm praying that the, all believers will be one. 
I'm praying that there will be unity in the body of Christ, that they all may be one. Why? So that the world will know that you sent me. Unity as believers is a testimony of who Jesus is. And when, and when believers aren't unified, it's a terrible testimony to the world. And the world looks at the church and says, well, why would I want that? And so it's important. He's praying for unity. He's praying for oneness. He closes the prayer, verse 25 and 26, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And so what's Jesus' main concern? What's he praying for? What did he pray for 2,000 years ago for you and for me? He's praying for unity. Now, when we think about unity of believers, there's two aspects of unity. There's positional unity, and there's practical unity. There's our standing before Christ, and then there's our sanctification, how we, we live that out. So last... Uh, Last weekend, uh, up at uh, just north of Chelsea, Robin Hills Farms, um, we did a wedding and had a, a groom and a bride uh, and uh, did the ceremony and got that very, very end part. And it's the part where it's the pronouncement of husband and wife. They say, now by the authority given to me as a minister of the Church of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you. And I just kind of paused. And there was a pregnant moment there, and the bride and groom were like, come on, (laughs) say it. Husband and wife, you are now positionally, legally uh, one. Legally. But there's also practical unity, and that's living it out. And uh, that's where the, where the, the challenge becomes. And so Jesus is praying for unity, and positionally, we are one in Christ. We are, we are united with every other believer that's put their faith in Jesus as the body of Christ. We're part of the worldwide body of Christ. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For we were all baptized by one spirit. We are one body. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So positionally, we are one. So perhaps Jesus is praying for our practical unity, that we would live out that unity, and there's lots of instructions in Scripture of how to do that. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, we looked at it briefly this past uh, week in our life group. Uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit or pride. Rather, in humility, value others as better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have the same mindset as Jesus. And so a lot of the writings of the gospel, of the uh, epistles rather, is telling us how to, how to be unified. Don't be selfish. Don't just think about your own situation Think about others before you think about yourself. 
Have the mind of Christ. Be humble. And that's the pathway to unity. And so Jesus' prayer is, um, is that we'd be, be unified. And Ephesians 4, 3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. <laughs> this sometimes takes work. And um, it's learning to, as believers, agree to disagree. Now, there's certainly some fundamental doctrines that we need to, to, to stand firm and, and stand strong in the faith because they're the core essentials of Christianity. And, and we need to, to be willing to, to die for those. And, and in church history, many people have died for their faith. But there's also issues where we, what, graciously agree to disagree, and we live in harmony, and we live in unity. It's also unity of, of purpose. What is the mission of the church? Why are we here? What have we been called to do? The Great Commission, go you into all the world, and what? Make disciples, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And so we're to make disciples. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's our goal. Don't miss June 13th. That's going to be an exciting Sunday. We've got five different representatives coming from different mission organizations and ministries. We're going to bless them with some um, gifts that you've generously given to further what? The mission of the gospel. And the Acts 1-8 project. We're, we're going to invest... We're going to invest $10,000 locally. We're going to invest $10,000 in U.S.-based missions. We're going to invest $10,000 in world mission. Why? Because that's what God's called us to do. It's unity of purpose. It's also unity of, I call it, pain and pleasure. Romans twelve fifteen. Rejoice with those that rejoice. And mourn with those that mourn. Oh, that's where unity comes from. It's not just unified in that we're all in Christ and that we all have the same mission and the same goal, but it's unity of pain and pleasure. And when one part of the body rejoices, we're all supposed to rejoice. When one part of the body is hurting and in pain, we're all supposed to hurt and be in pain. Why? Because we're one body. And so that's what uni where unity comes from. It's as simple as when we have, this will be a simple illustration, but when we have a birthday cake honoring a, a significant birthday, it's what? We take two extra minutes and go in there and, and sing and rejoice. Or when we hear about somebody in the body that's hurting, we pray for them and maybe send them an encouraging note. And that unifies the body. And so Jesus is praying for unity. Well, four key lessons from John chapter 17. When we pray, the posture of our heart is more important than the posture of our body. And just as Jesus knew his purpose and mission in life to come and to seek and to save that which was lost and to, to bring honor and glory to God, we have been created not for ourselves, but to what? 
glorify God and to bring Him pleasure. Number three, eternal life is both qualitative. We're going to live forever in the new heaven and the new earth, but it's also quantitative. It's getting to know God in an intimate, deep way. And lastly, the lesson is the significance and impact of prayer. Would you join me in praying together, shall we, as we close this morning? Lord, as we pause this morning um, uh, before you, most of us are seated, a couple of us are standing, but Lord, uh, you're more concerned about the posture of our hearts. And so this morning we bow the knee. We humbly come before you. We recognize that you are the giver of all good gifts. We recognize that our very next breath is dependent upon you. Lord, we give you praise. Lord, I pray that um, as we journey through this life, and no matter where we are in life's journey, Lord, help us to understand why we are here. Lord, help us to uh, bring honor and glory to your name in everything that we do. Lord, help us this week to make a goal and a purpose to get to know you better. Lord, that won't happen unless we discipline ourselves to spend time with you. Time in your word and time in prayer. And Lord, help us to realize the incredible significance and impact of prayer. And that 2,000 years ago, your son Jesus prayed for us, that we might be one. And while we're positionally one, if we know Christ is our Savior, Lord, help us today to live out that practical unity that shows the world the, the unity of believers and that testifies to the truth that Jesus came, because we're one. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace and strength to do that. We will thank you in Jesus' name.